Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind the headlines. I'm Brian Ballow. I'm Joanne Freeman. And I'm Nathan Connolly. We're going to start today's show with a guy who gets a lot of calls at work. The calls really are of one or two varieties. One is, I am in trouble. The FBI knocked on my door. Uh, What do I do? This is Elliot Burke, a lawyer in Washington, D.C. Burke specializes in congressional ethics. Or, hey, I've assumed some office or we're taking on some new initiative. We want to make sure we don't have any problems moving forward. Burke helps elected officials and staffers figure out if what they're doing or what they've done is corrupt. He's counseled plenty of heavy hitters, including former House Majority Leader Tom DeLay. Now, whether or not you're corrupt seems pretty straightforward, right? But it's not. This, after all, is Washington, D.C. Burke says that a few years ago, a congressional staffer came to him with a predicament. Did she face any ethics issues in accepting an engagement ring? If your boyfriend or girlfriend wants to propose to you and gives you a ring, technically speaking, that needs to be pre-cleared by the ethics committees. Why? Because members of Congress and staffers are not allowed to receive gifts worth more than $50. Unless, says Burke, the recipient can prove the gift is from a personal friend. That can get complicated in the highly networked world of Washington. Sometimes personal relationships come under scrutiny. I had a conversation with one of the ethics councils in which I was told that it was actually better if you were living with your boyfriend or girlfriend, because then it shows a history of sort of sharing the rent and, you know, reciprocal gifts back and forth than if you were living apart. Burke says that a lot of these convoluted rules are the products of scandals that have rocked Capitol Hill over the years. Most of what we still see are knee-jerk reactions to scandal that creates very arcane and, I think, impractical rules to address something that had proper enforcement been in play, you know, the laws on the books and the rules on the books could have addressed the situation. One example, says Burke, is the reform passed in the wake of the Jack Abramoff lobbying scandal a few years back. Abramoff, you may remember, was a powerful lobbyist who lavished gifts on members of Congress in exchange for votes that benefited his clients. Right after passing this particular set of reforms, the House Ethics Committee sent out a memo clarifying some of the new rules. In this memo, they said that a member may accept a $15 baseball cap with a corporate logo of a company, but they could not accept a $12 coffee mug from the same company with the same logo. Uh, I don't know if a coffee mug has a greater utility than a baseball cap, but while we appreciate the clarity on that point, uh, it still can be very frustrating to try to explain to somebody that, you know, that's where they ended up. Now, Burke does believe there should be strong ethics guidelines on the books, 
But the current patchwork system of rules also means that he spends a lot of time parsing the difference between mugs and caps, while truly questionable deals are perfectly legal. Consider this example. Under current rules, a lobbyist is not allowed to take a lawmaker out to lunch, unless the lunch isn't just a lunch. They can turn around and take that member of Congress as a candidate to lunch as a fundraiser and pass him a $500 check. Uh, that's perfectly permissible. But I'm not sure from a civic perspective that that's the most sensible environment to, to operate. Accusations of corruption in Washington have reached a fever pitch in the last few years. You might remember one of candidate Donald Trump's most famous campaign promises. With the American voter begins with a plan to end the rampant government corruption. We are going to drain the swamp in Washington, D.C. We're draining the swamp. Corruption is an issue on both sides of the aisle in Washington. Earlier this month, Democratic Senator Bob Menendez was tried in federal court on charges of bribery and fraud. His case ended in a hung jury. And the Trump administration has been dogged by accusations of corruption pretty much from day one. Several former White House ethics lawyers have filed a lawsuit against President Trump. The suit alleges Mr. Trump is violating the Constitution by allowing his hotels and other businesses to accept payments from foreign governments. Paul Manafort, former Trump campaign chairman, is now a criminal defendant, accused of hiding millions in foreign consulting fees to avoid paying taxes and failing to register as a foreign lobbyist. And lawmakers in both parties are asking why a small Montana company was granted a $300 million no-bid contract to help rebuild transmission and distribution lines. What exactly constitutes corruption is a question that has bedeviled generations of Americans since the founding. And so today on the show, we're revisiting an earlier Backstory episode on the history of political corruption. How have Americans defined it over the years? And why has the specter of corruption always loomed so large in our politics? Have things gotten any less corrupt over the course of history? Or have the mechanisms of corruption simply evolved? To answer this question, we'll return, as we often do, to the founding period. During the nation's first years, corruption was on everyone's mind. It had been a major topic of conversation during the Revolution concerning the British government, and now, with the new American government underway, corruption seemed like a looming threat. This was a topic of conversation among three founders who sat down to dinner together at Thomas Jefferson's Philadelphia home in April of 1791. Jefferson was the Secretary of State at the time. His guests were Vice President John Adams and Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton. One of Backstory's founding hosts, Peter Oniff, sat down with Joanne back in 2014 to unpack this dinner-side debate. We'll let Peter and Joanne take it from here. They're chatting, I guess, as founders are wont to do, about the British Constitution, casually. Mm, mm. And uh, Adams says... Purge the British Constitution of its corruption mm -hmm. and give its popular branch equality of representation, and it would be the most perfect 
government on the face of the earth. Ooh, well, now Jefferson wouldn't like that, would he? Jefferson's not going to like that. Jefferson is not no, going to think that the British monarchy is the most perfect <laughs> government on the face of the earth. We did have a revolution. Yeah. yeah okay. We kind of went against the not... monarchy thing. <laughs> right. But that's not the worst of it because then Hamilton opens his mouth. Yeah. Hamilton's does good at opening yeah. his mouth. So Hamilton then says, oh, no, no, no. Keep the corruption and introduce some equality into that popular <laughs> branch and it would be the most perfect government on the face of the earth. Now, hold it. He says, hooray for corruption. <laughs> He at least says, we need corruption. Yeah. Okay, explain that, Joanne. Well, to Hamilton, corruption equals practical politics. I mean, to Hamilton, Mm. it's it's one thing to talk about ideals. It's another thing to get politics done. And so in a way, what Hamilton is talking about is – what in his mind he would conceive of as the reality of wheeling and dealing in politics, the fact that stuff happens behind the scenes, people give and take, and that that's the real world, Jefferson, and that's how politics works. Okay, so corruption is good because it means deal-making. Yeah, well, it it means, you know, sort of removing the brakes of the -hmm. public government and allowing things to happen behind the scenes. Uh, Now, of course, uh, you're casting Jefferson as totally shocked. What's troubling, Jefferson, is it that he thinks that corruption somehow is going to interfere with representative government, that uh, government won't represent the people if it's corrupted? Yeah, I think that's what he thinks. And I think he actually then thinks that that's what happens, that congressmen have been corrupted by Hamilton, that they're going to use insider knowledge somehow and run around collecting IOUs from war veterans because they know the government's going to actually function and pay them back. Right. And these veterans are selling them at a really reduced rate. And so basically he thinks that mm-hmm. what Hamilton is really trying to do is corrupt in a way, I guess, the government itself mm-hmm. by, by making the government into what he wants it to be, that he's going to make it more powerful, more centralized, yeah, yeah. more nationalized than it's ever intended to be. And he'll do that by finding ways to corrupt officials. Right. So this is really a debate about the nature of power itself in the new republic. And what have we done? What's the real constitution going to be like? It's not just the thing that's written on paper. It's the way power is actually exercised. Exactly. I mean, one of the great things about studying this period is that they don't just worry about that sort of stuff. They worry mm-hmm. about it really consciously, like on paper. Like, what mm-hmm. do you think about the use of power in the yeah, government? Yeah, and, exactly. You know, one of the ways in which that plays out, which seems ridiculous to us but seemed important mm-hmm. to them, is they're worried about procedures. Who talks to who and where and when? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's not, in a way, surprising that um, European diplomats – often say that they'd rather chat with Hamilton because he's willing to just go into a room and do whatever needs to be done, whereas Jefferson very much wants to be following the proper channel out in the open. Actually, Washington, who's being very careful as Mm -hmm, first president, mm -hmm. does the same thing. Um, A French minister comes up to him and says he wants to talk in private with him, and Washington says, well, no, you're supposed to first talk to the secretary of state, and Mm. when this minister says, no, you don't understand, I just want to talk with you, (laughs) (laughs) Washington basically says no. You know, yeah. that's not the way the system works. They're, they're trying very hard to be accountable as to who has power and where the power is. Okay, so Jefferson's really concerned about what Hamilton's doing to the government. He has suspicions about uh, how he might be pulling the strings and really uh, subverting the independence of the representatives of the people. And he launches a campaign to try to, uh, in effect, expose the scandal of corruption. 
Tell us how that works out, Joanne. Right. Well, he wants to sort of figure out where all of the corruption is, but he does not do this himself. No, he wouldn't, um, of course. That of would course be he wouldn't. This, and and <laughs> this is right. Well, this is what Hamilton accuses Jefferson of being sort of sneaky and corrupt because he's always doing everything behind the scenes and he doesn't ever step up and do it in public. So Hamilton would say, yeah, see, there <laughs> right, he goes he's again. He's corrupt too. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this um, is one of the first big efforts to expose corruption in American history and it's not the last. No. Tell us about this. Well, uh, Jefferson gets uh, an ally of his from Virginia named William Branch Giles to propose a series, basically a series of resolutions in Congress querying certain things about Hamilton's behavior, about what he's done in the Treasury Department and where the money has gone and mm-hmm. who's been moving it. And essentially, it's a series of resolutions that's going to force Hamilton to come out in the open and absolutely declare where yeah. the money's going and right. why and how it's gone there. So what happens? This must be sensational. It's like the Watergate uh, of its era. Well, right. It's it's it is a big deal, and there, there's um, Hamilton is really crotchety. <laughs> there's all these letters from him in which he's like, you know, I could be doing Treasury work, but no, I'm writing reports <laughs> showing how I didn't do things that I didn't do. Yeah. Um, in the end, Hamilton is very happy to report that there's no proof of anything. He comes out crystal clear, having written a bazillion reports and shown in his mind where all the money has gone. There isn't corruption proven. I don't think that that persuades Jefferson and his friends for a moment that there isn't corruption. He just thinks they haven't managed to put their finger on it. Yeah, so the failure of this campaign to expose uh, corruption in the Washington administration uh, doesn't put an end to these concerns about corruption. What's the upshot of this failure to expose the bad guys? Well, I mean, ironically, the the inability to find corruption ups the idea that it really must <laughs> be there. It's really corrupt. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's so corrupt we can't see it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and eventually, uh, isn't it true that uh, Republicans in Congress in Washington's second administration have concluded that Washington himself is a dupe of the corruptors? Well, that's true. People begin to suspect that not that he's corrupt, but that just as you put it, that he's been duped by sneaky Mm -hmm. ministers like Hamilton. And this is the great irony of the American founding, the American Revolution experiment in Republican government, is that the people get their government, but they don't believe it's their government. So the big party division emerges between the governors, the people who are trying to make things happen, and then those who suspect their motives. So Republican self-government doesn't lead to this uh, era of enlightenment and moral progress. It leads to a new kind of uh, profound division over the very nature of power. Right. So one of the many ironies of this period is they want to launch this wonderful new thing, but because it's wonderful and new, Mm -hmm. it's scary, it's upset, they're not sure it works, and it sort of spirals into this environment of charges and countercharges and accusations and fear of corruption and proof of corruption. And it, 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 Hamilton might even say that people like Jefferson and his ilk are corrupting the public by pandering to them, by being mm-hmm. demagogues, by, oh. by promising them things that they can't have and thus getting their power and oh. then doing whatever the heck they so, want. So this is the unthinkable conclusion that Hamilton is suggesting, and that is ultimately the problem with Republican government is the people themselves who are subject to manipulation and corruption. So there's no pure source of good government in the people, and that would be the most deeply troubling thing to Jefferson, wouldn't it? 
That would be. And Hamilton draws that conclusion after the presidential election of 1800, mm-hmm. when the presidency goes to Jefferson and Hamilton, I think in 1802, is trying to figure out what the heck <laughs> did we do wrong? Yeah, and yeah. one of the things he says is we should have pandered to the people because the people are vain and they'll always mm-hmm. respond to that. And the Republicans are great at that kind of essentially yeah. corruption. That was a conversation with Joanne Freeman and Backstory host Emeritus, Peter Onuf. In 1824, four candidates duked it out for the presidency of the United States. But it was really a contest between two men, Tennessee's Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams of Massachusetts. Jackson, known at the time mostly as a heroic commander in the War of 1812, won the popular vote. But even though Jackson won more votes than the other candidates, he fell short of the number of electoral college votes needed to assume the presidency. And so, the decision was thrown to the House of Representatives. This is when things got really interesting, because it turns out the guy who came in fourth place, that's dead last, was also the Speaker of the House, Kentucky's Henry Clay. And since he wielded so much power in Congress, Clay was in a position to choose the next commander-in-chief. I'm sorry. Are you laughing at our country? (laughs) Clay announced that he would support Adams, even though the two had had politically and personally almost nothing in common before this. This is historian Daniel Feller. That made him president, and then he immediately turned around and appointed Henry Clay secretary of state. The last three secretaries of state in a row, including Adams, had become president, so it looked like simple quid pro quo. I'm Henry Clay. I make you president. You make me president next. Our co-host, Ed Ayers, sat down with Daniel Feller to discuss this dramatic case of quid pro quo, one that would go down in history as the corrupt bargain of 1824. Feller says that many Americans were outraged. And Andrew Jackson... He was beside himself. Jackson, as soon as he learned, not that Adams had been elected, he actually took that with some good grace. Mm -hmm. But as soon as Adams then announced Clay as Secretary of State, Jackson just exploded. Jackson certainly believed that as the other Westerner in in the uh, campaign, that Clay should have thrown his support to him. Uh, And in a famous letter, he said, and now I am quoting him, so you see the Judas of the West has closed the contract and will receive the 30 pieces of silver. Was there ever witnessed such a barefaced corruption in any country before? So how does the so-called corrupt bargain of 1824 compare to or relate to what we think of corruption today? The word corruption today we normally associate with mere monetary or financial gain, you know, mm. graft. Right. When Jackson talked about barefaced corruption, he was not talking about money. What he was really talking about, and this idea goes back to uh, earlier American history and before that to English history, uh, the idea that government is not serving the purposes for which it's intended that it's not serving the people's will, that it is instead dealing favors out. So, Dan, I hear several elements here that makes this sound corrupt, is that Jackson got more than anybody else, right? So it kind of feels like he 
should be able to be president. Uh, and I also hear that uh, the fourth place guy just sort of comes in and gets this plum job. So I would say on the surface of it, it looks corrupt to me. It looked corrupt to a lot of people. It certainly looked corrupt to Andrew Jackson. Now, the other side of that, if you look at it from Clay and Adams's point of view, Clay actually announced publicly before the election in the House that he was going to support Adams. And he did so on, on transparent grounds. He said, like him or not, John Quincy Adams is an accomplished statesman. There's no doubt that he is qualified for the job. Uh, whereas Andrew Jackson is a mere, and these were Clay's words, military chieftain. Mm. The American Republic was still young at the time. People were very aware of the fragility and the failure of past republics. And one thing that had done republics in from ancient Greece and ancient Rome down to recent France was the man on horseback, the military hero, who comes in and rides roughshod over the republic and the liberties of the people. And Andrew Jackson throughout his career had shown a remarkable ability to uh, ignore or override civilian authority to take the law into his own hands. Not to mention all those people he killed in duels and Not, things, Well, right? he actually <laughs> only killed one in a duel. Oh, but okay. Yeah, well. uh, there were others he would have liked to have killed. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's no reason, let me put it differently, there is, from Clay's point of view, every good reason right. why, despite their political differences, he should support Adams. And then, who is Adams going to appoint Secretary of State? In fact, there was nobody in the country who, by dint of inclination and interest and qualifications, was better suited to the job than Clay. Clay had wanted to be Secretary of State for years. It's kind of like if, if I do something for good reason and you do something for good reason, and in both cases we do it independently of each other for good reasons, why is there a bargain if my action happens to help you and your action happens to help me. So what we need to figure out is how this really pretty elaborate dance, it sounds, between the, the two politicians. Nobody is not being honest about what it is they want and need. Um, but on the other hand, there's no quid pro quo about a, a position, right? So how does it become known then as the corrupt bargain? By 1824, there was a groundswell building up in the States, and this was even before the so-called corrupt bargain, uh, demanding that the people be heard, that the people get to choose the president, that the, the will of the people out in, in the hinterlands should be observed. In light of that kind of groundswell of, of demand for, in a word, democracy, to have this election at this particular moment apparently decided by a handful of guys in a back room, in a congressional cloakroom, stank. Right. And one of the many ironies of this election is that Henry Clay had to do penance for the rest of his life for what he had done here. The cloud of making a corrupt bargain really tainted his entire public career after this. Possibly that was the thing that kept him from becoming president. And yet Clay had every good reason to think that this was the most self-sacrificing, patriotic, statesmanlike thing he ever did. So if we pull the camera back and look at this from the, the broad view of American history, why does this episode of the corrupt bargain and its aftermath really matter? Well, I think it matters because of the lesson that it sent, which is politicians, today we would call them perhaps inside the Beltway politicians, uh, do not right. represent the people. They will deal away your interests. They will thwart your will if given a chance. 
it's the prototypical story of the backroom deal that deprives the people of their choice. And the election of 1824 left us with the idea that any such kind of arrangement, what you might call normal political horse trading, is actually corruption. I think every time a candidate today runs against Washington, every time a candidate says, not vote for me because I know my way around the United States Senate, but instead vote for me because I don't know my way around the United <laughs> States Senate. Vote for me because I have not been polluted and corrupted and compromised by what's going on in Washington. That is an echo of 1824. Dan, thanks so much for unraveling this remarkable episode. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Historian Daniel Feller is the director of the Papers of Andrew Jackson at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. We're going to turn now to a bit of long-standing common sense. One way to keep government officials from taking bribes is to pay them good salaries and offer them job security. But it turns out a steady government paycheck for bureaucrats is a pretty recent innovation. For decades, government employees didn't actually get a salary. Instead, they were paid in bonuses and fees based on how well they did their jobs. In other words, government offices were basically for-profit enterprises. The practice lasted for a long time, through most of the 19th century, in fact. But Americans' ideas about government work were gradually shifting. And those shifts eventually culminated in the salary system we take for granted today. Legal scholar Nicholas Perillo has written about this overlooked chapter of history. When I sat down with him in 2014, he explained that there were actually two types of pay for government service. On the one hand, you had... Uh, some government officers who were paid on a profit-seeking basis to do things that people didn't want, okay? So the uh, prosecutors uh, receiving a fee for every conviction they won uh, would be an example of that. So would uh, tax collectors getting a percentage on all the evasions they discovered or on all the forfeitures they imposed on people. So that was kind of like a bounty, Exactly. You could think of these officers as, in a sense, bounty hunters. And uh, basically, the more uh, the more unpopular the law they were being asked to enforce, the higher the fee would be. So you might get, say, a $10 fee for prosecuting a misdemeanor, a $20 fee for prosecuting a, an ordinary felony. Right. But if you uh, brought a prosecution and won it uh, under the prohibition laws or the anti-gambling laws, you might get a fee of $50 or 100 <laughs> <laughs> or something or something like that. And I, I, I mean, I think this is interesting because although we today think of profit-seeking in government as sounding generally kind of corrupt, these kinds of incentives were actually a, an effort to counter corruption. They were an incentive to get the officer to follow the law and enforce the law to the hilt, to the letter. So the corruption entailed was simply doing what was easiest and not doing what 
might get you run out of town. Right, 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 exactly. And by giving people a monetary incentive to enforce the law to the hilt and to the letter, that was anti-corruption. That was a, a, an early foray into efforts at, at good government. And and then on the other hand, uh, the other half of the dichotomy uh, would be government officers who were paid on a profit-seeking basis for providing services to people who wanted those services, the government land officers who uh, had to make decisions about whether settlers had fulfilled the requirements to get a homestead uh, would be paid a fee when they granted the homestead. Uh, another example would be the, the officers who decided immigrants' applications to become citizens. And the idea was that these officers are providing a kind of private service that helps private people out and a way of inducing them to provide good service and serve their customers uh, is to is to pay them a fee and maybe even negotiate a fee. But if I went to the uh, DMV and paid the person behind the desk my $17 and that person put the money in their pocket, mm -hmm. I would call that fraud. Yeah, or, or, or corruption, yeah. yeah. Um, for that not to be corrupt, you have to have a quite different conception of government office than we have now. You can't really view officers as creatures of a legislature or of a centralized government the way we view them today. You have to view them as, uh, you know, sort of, sort of quasi-independent uh, vendors, you know, whose obligation is to just kind of, you know, reach workable arrangements with the people who need their services it's not about providing, you know, kind of uniform service to everybody. So they're almost like mediators today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But something new happens with how people think about government offices by the early 19th century. They start to think, well, actually, these offices— they aren't businesses. They're creations of the government. They have no existence apart from the elected lawmakers who supposedly create them. Right. Uh, and therefore, officers should only be able to take a fee for their service if the legislature actually establishes the fee in an act that it passes as a law. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a, a hilarious uh, incident uh, in which the federal government land officers uh, wrote to their bosses and said, look, the settlers applying for homesteads would like us to help them fill out their forms. And we're really good at helping people <laughs> fill out their forms. We deal with these forms all day. Uh, can we take a fee for, uh, you know, helping these people fill out their forms. The settlers want to pay us this fee because, you know, they think they're going to have to pay more if they go to some private attorney or if they don't get any help, they might do it wrong, you know, or something like that. Yeah, no, they're the original, they're the original H&R Block. Exactly. And the bosses write back and they say, Congress has not authorized you to take a fee for helping people to fill out their forms. <laughs> you can only take the fees on the list. It would be nice if you helped people fill out their forms, but Congress has not authorized it. It's not in the law. You cannot take anything. You know, I mean, the aspiration was for these fees for service to continue to imbue the government with customer service. But once you have the legislature saying, look, we want to control this, we want to kind of uh, uh, confirm our own supremacy, they, they got to regulate everything. And that's really hard to do uh, in a way that continues to be customer service. Is that how we get salaries? Does Congress throw up their hands and say, oh my God, what a mess we've gotten ourselves into? 
Yeah, I think that's ultimately one of the one of the major reasons. It became a, a, a sort of a logistically uh, impossible regulatory task. And, and of course, uh, g- government officers would often not listen to their bosses. They wouldn't listen to the legislature. They'd continue to, to strike deals on an individualized basis. But now, after this ideological change involving all this stuff about legislative supremacy, that comes to be labeled as right. corrupt. So, so when you observe what contemporaries in history call big increases in corruption, often you're not actually observing a change in behavior. You're observing the same behavior, but people are looking at it differently with a different and new set of expectations. Nicholas Perillo teaches law at Yale and is the author of Against the Profit Motive, The Salary Revolution in American Government, 1780 through 1940. Campaign finance reform is another perennial concern of good government types. Proponents argue that our whole political system is legally corrupted by the vast amounts of corporate money that pour into modern campaigns. And that concern is not new. Attempts to reform the system go back more than 100 years. In 1907, Congress passed the first major campaign finance legislation. It was called the Tillman Act. Legal scholar Adam Winkler explains how it came about. There was a huge scandal in 1905 that showed that insurance companies were donating policyholders' money to uh, elections, especially the re-election campaign of President Teddy Roosevelt. I thought that Teddy Roosevelt made his reputation for cleaning up corruption. It turns out he was on the take. Well, Teddy Roosevelt had this image of a trust buster. But before he had the image of of a trust buster, he had the image of someone who was on the make from corporations. It was the presidential election of 1904 that raised uh, particular controversy. When it came out that the life insurance companies were giving huge contributions in excess of, in today's dollars, uh, in excess of $2 million, um, that led to uh, nationwide outrage. Do people think the practices of these corporations are corrupt? I don't mean just in terms of payoffs to politicians, but in terms of using stockholders' funds to try to influence politics. Do they use the stockholders' money corruptly? Absolutely. We have to remember that this is the period where we see the rise of the modern corporation with modern stockholders where people are investing through the stock market and also uh, we see a huge number of people who are investing in insurance companies um, as policyholders. That's the way basically they provided for their retirement in an era before pensions and before social security. And so you have this modern corporation where uh, you're separating increasingly ownership from control. Uh, And the mass of owners have very, very little power over their corporation. And what they're finding with the campaign finance scandals of the early 1900s is that uh, their money is being used to finance politics against their will. And indeed, there were a lot of Democrats, for instance, among the insurance company policyholders, and their money was being used to help elect Republicans. Uh, And so uh, many people thought this was really the height of corruption. It wasn't just that corporations were buying influence, but they were buying influence with your money in ways that were designed to reduce your power. 
and this set off a huge scandal. At the time, it was called the scandal of the century. Of course, the century would have plenty more scandals to come. Um, <laughs> but this really put pressure on Republicans, especially Teddy Roosevelt, to adopt campaign finance reform. Adam, so what is this Tillman Act, and does it work? The Tillman Act is a law that bans corporations from giving anything of value to a candidate for federal office. And the law is effective in reducing corporate money directly from the corporate till. However, individual contributions were not banned. And so candidates just went to uh, the heads of the big corporations and insurance companies and asked them to give huge personal contributions. And indeed, at that time, most election campaigns were financed by just a handful of very, very wealthy people. Adam, I want to return to Teddy Roosevelt's, well, to use a contemporary political term, flip-flop. It seems to me that even then there was this pattern of politicians who would like to be known as crusading against corruption. That's certainly what Teddy Roosevelt did uh, when he was a local politician and a state politician, and that was his reputation. These politicians make a career crusading against corruption, yet they're kind of forced to play ball with that corrupt system. Do you think that's true? And do you think that's the problem with getting any traction on campaign finance reform today? I think that is true, Brian. In many ways, candidates can suffer a certain cognitive dissonance. You know, they don't necessarily see their votes as being up for sale. So they don't view the money they receive as being corrupt. And I think that was the case with Teddy Roosevelt. He thought of himself as a trust buster who was going to break up the big corporations. Yet when the corporations gave him money, he said, well, I'm not going to sell anything to them, so I need that money. That helps me get elected and do good things for the people. So when it comes to money in politics, I think politicians generally just don't see money as being all that corrupt because they don't view themselves as being corrupt and as willing to sell their votes for the highest bidder. Sounds to me like the politicians trust themselves a lot more than the American public does. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. Adam, thanks for joining us today on Backstory, and I want you to know the check's in the mail. <laughs> thanks so much, Brian. Adam Winkler is a legal scholar at UCLA. His new book, We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights, will be published early next year. Nathan, Joanne, listening to some of these interviews, it seems like corruption's just in the eye of the beholder. Well, it's only corrupt when the other guy does it, right, Ryan? I, mean, <laughs> I don't I mean, know. What's it worth to you? <laughs> I mean, I think it's, it's, it's pretty clear that, you know, you can have so-called corruption in the absence of laws. You can have corruption that basically brings about the creation of new laws. And you certainly can have more regulations on the books in any given context, whether it's city code or congressional procedures, and people will selectively enforce those in the interest of basically advancing their interests, i.e. corruption. So, that there isn't really a correlation between the numbers of laws in any given moment or context, but that it's really about what people are willing to assert is corruption and, and for what reason, I would say. 
Right. I mean, in a sense, what we're saying here is it's only corruption if we decide it's corruption, right? Mm -hmm. It's only corruption if we name it that, and then we decide to go after it. Well, is that name something they used in the early republic, Joanne? Oh, yeah. I mean, corruption was a buzzword in the early republic. But, but in a way, because of that, everything and nothing could be corrupt. Mm -hmm. I need some examples. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's like in the interview that we heard earlier, right, in which you have people like Jefferson and Adams saying, oh, corruption is horrible in government, corruption is horrible in government. And Hamilton says, no, no, it's actually kind of good. Now, what Hamilton's talking about is I scratch your back and you scratch my back. Uh -huh. and you do something mm -hmm. for me and I'll give you something. And, you know, by his standards, that's just the way the world goes. So, you know, he's using the word corruption because everybody else was. But in his mind, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. He wouldn't name that corruption, I don't think. Right. right. Bondholders get a decent deal on interest and they've got a stake in the United States government. What's wrong with that? Well, right. right. So if you think that that's the way things work and that that's the way things should work, is that corruption? And I would say, too, that there's ebbs and flows in terms of what the American public will tolerate or even consider corruption. I mean, just thinking about, for instance, the period of the early Cold War, you know, you have someone like Harry Truman who really does come up through the political machine of Kansas City and is seen as being, you know, a, a real source of corruption and mismanagement. You know, you have people in the IRS who are on the take. You've got... Don't uh, forget cronyism, Nathan. <laughs> and, and, and labor unions as, as being, you know, the source of a kind of racketeering menace, number runners. And it gets to the point where, you know, Dwight D. Eisenhower... In 1952 can run on a you know anti-corruption platform explicitly and really generate a great deal of support or someone like Senator Estes Kefauver of Tennessee who can hold these you know national hearings a liberal democrat from Tennessee and become really a national player politically because he's seen as being anti-corruption and so even though you have you know a kind of foil on the international stage in the Soviet Union as kind of corrupt state government that concern about Corruption is, is driving American domestic politics in, in very profound ways. And Nathan, you mentioned those big city machines, and that kind of brings to mind Tammany Hall in mm -hmm. the 19th century, a kind of classic New York corrupt political machine. But I think when we're talking about corruption— Speed matters. Hmm. There are a whole bunch of scholars, a generation of historians, have argued that one of the reasons we got subway systems, water systems, aqueducts, roads in the cities, one of the reasons we got things done was it was kind of a, I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back, we're going to make this happen really fast, let's not worry about the details. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. But that speed requires pulling people out of the political process, which is in a lot of ways what corruption is, is largely about, right? Whose voices are not represented? Is there due process? Is there transparency? I mean, the wheels of government will turn much more slowly if more people are allowed to have an opinion and make their voice, you know, heard. Um, I mean, one of, one of the great, you know, landscapes of corruption in American politics is not the urban north under, say, the New Deal, but it's actually the Jim Crow South, right, where whole swaths of the population were totally disenfranchised franchise and not allowed to have any say at all in the political process. So, and I think so the you, corruption you're referring to there, for instance, 
is taxing African-American property at exorbitant rates compared to white property. Oh, sure. Cl- closing elementary schools early so that you can send black kids out into the fields to pick crops or making sure that the police departments were going to be on the take policing certain neighborhoods over others. I mean, there's all kind of manner of, you know, Southern corruption under Jim Crow that I'm sure was as bad as anything that, you know, Thomas Jefferson or Alexander Hamilton might have had nightmares about. <laughs> but you know? to go back to Joanne's point, was that labeled by the establishment itself corruption? Oh, no, that's just politics. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> Joanne's point. But, but, right. But here's the, here's the thing, though, about corruption in the United States or in a democracy versus corruption in another kind of a government, right? Because there's mm. corruption in all forms of government. But in right. a democratic government, it feels like corruption by choice. And there's mm. something that's more painful and nastier. Explain that, Joanne. Yeah, corruption by well, choice. Because, uh, I'm intrigued. Right. <laughs> well, because in a democratic system, the idea is, right, that we are making choices that are putting things into play. Now, the system can be corrupted, the people can be corrupted, the outcome can be corrupted, but the underlying idea behind a democratic system of governance is that it, 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 in one way or another, we are choosing. We might be making I got stupid it. choices. So exhibit A might be the spoil system that came into play after that corrupt bargain we talked about earlier in the show, where everything was kind of out in the open. If you vote for me, if you vote for Andrew Jackson, I'm going to get you a job. It's right. It wasn't hidden. Uh, and in a way, it can't be called corruption if it's right out there in front. Right. That's democracy. <laughs> That's well, and, the people and- choosing. Exactly. And people put the people in power, choosing them to do that. So let me pose this to you. Our president, Donald Trump, made it very clear that he was going to turn to relatives, to daughters, to son-in-laws in order to run the government. Now, for at least 50 years, that seemed beyond the pale. We have laws against nepotism. So Is it corruption when Donald Trump says, I'm going to do this? He does it, but he is elected by the people of the United States? Right. Is it corruption when he says, I'm going to do this? And then America says, or at least some part of America says, okay. Exactly. I mean, I think that's exactly what you were talking about, right, Joanne? Yeah. Yeah. So then exactly. Is it? If it's out in the open and it's offered as a choice and people choose it, what does that mean? Right. And and it really does kind of close the circle, too, on the idea about the public trust, because part of what Donald Trump's statements about appointing family members really is about is basically saying, I don't trust Washington bureaucrats. Right? I don't trust exactly. corrupt politicians. Right. Um, and so if you want a more trustworthy government, allow me to appoint my family members. <laughs> now, that would not apply to my family. I just want to make that very clear. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it also you know, points to that there's there's a shifting sense of what exactly the public money is for, right? right. I mean, so much of what mm-hmm. this is about is about government spending. I mean, you're supposed to have, uh, you know, again, accountability, transparency, you know, documentation of everything because the idea is that everyone is paid into this system collectively and we're supposed to get collective goods out of it. But if, if the notion of taxation is considered to be a form of theft by many parts of the electorate, right. if the notion of public spending is considered to be only mm-hmm. a side of corruption by many corners of the electorate, then why not put a really, you know, savvy businessman and and his family and handlers in charge of that to hopefully gradually dismantle what has as a whole been considered in, in recent years a corrupt system by many. Well, that's going to do it for us today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. You'll find us at backstoryradio.org 
or send an email to backstory at virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Tony Field, Nina Ernest, Andrew Parsons, Kelly Jones, and Bruce Wallace. Our staff also includes Bridget McCarthy, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Robin Blue, Anjali Bishash, Sequoia Carrillo, Emma Gregg, Courtney Spagna, and Aaron Teeling. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza, Poddington Bear, and Jazar. And thanks, as always, to the Johns Hopkins Studios in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Brian Vallow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.